The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Investors Nelson Peltz and Dan Loeb's campaigns to win over P&G and Honeywell failed, at least in the short term. That's why we're going to talk about activism in this week's edition of The Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm your host, Jennifer Saba, and joining me in the studio, as always, is my co-host, Anthony Curry. Hello, Anthony. Hey, Jen. How are you doing? Also on the line from Dallas is our colleague, Lauren Silva Laughlin. Welcome, Lauren. Hello. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let's start with the news out of Procter & Gamble. They had a very acrimonious fight with Nelson Peltz and his uh, fund, Tryon, and he was trying to get a seat on the board. They had a uh, vote. It was yesterday. Is that correct, Lauren? Yes, that's right. And he narrowly lost. I mean, it's still kind of up in the air what's going on here. So why don't you just kind of take us through uh, and tell us what's going on? So back in February, um, Peltz took this very large for him stake in the company. It was small sort of percentage wise, which is interesting in and of itself. Then, of course, the market started buzzing about what he was planning on doing with that stake. And everyone sort of thought he'd push for a breakup. Come midsummer, he um, he didn't. He really just said, hey, I'm looking for a seat on the board. I want to work with the company. By the way, I don't even want to kick off any of your current directors on the board. I just want to be sitting at the table as a voice for shareholders. Um, And that's when things really started to get ugly because it created a situation where he was making softer arguments um, and they were harder for the company to really sort of put down. Um, And the attacks became very personal. So over the course of the next couple of months, you started to see the company attacking Peltz and his own record as an investor. Um, Peltz really tried to get in the nitty gritty of the company and its decisions, its returns. Um, and then, you know, it sort of culminated yesterday, which which was this bizarre vote that was so close that Peltz hasn't even really conceded. He's waiting for an official sign off from the proxy solicitors to try to get the real read on the vote. Again, maybe a negotiating tactic to try to still get a seat on the board. Um, of course, P&G says that he lost. So this is a $230 billion consumer packaged goods company that has been struggling lately. I mean, it it seems very reasonable what Peltz wanted to do. And as I think you've written before, they have a very entrenched board. Management, it's not entirely clear the succession plan, I think. Um, So, I mean, why do you think that P&G decided to fight instead of, say, like Mondelez, which also Nelson Peltz was in, who he got a seat on the board, and it seems like things are much smoother over there. Well, it's funny to hear Peltz say it himself. You know, he thinks that it's an issue with the ego of the board. If you have the 11 people on the boards, you know, six are former CEOs and four are current CEOs. So it is very entrenched. And um, there's lots of research out there that, that shows and says that, you know, CEO directors are less likely to question the CEO, in particular pay, which is one thing that Peltz was complaining about, not necessarily the management pay, but the way the pay structure was throughout the company. It, it is a somewhat difficult argument. You know, like you said, it's a very large, slow-moving 
company, um, they their CEO has just been back for about two years. The company's argument was like, hey, let's give him some time. Ultimately, really, you know, Peltz thought it was just a delaying tactic and put him off. And there's there's real valuable things he thinks the company should be doing that competitors like Unilever are doing. And PNG is just completely averse to doing that. Well, I mean, like, like what? What what examples was was he giving of, of what Unilever is doing and PNG isn't? The main example is that there's been a shift in the consumer goods. Uh, segment for for these smaller companies like Dollar Shave Club, for example, to pop up and really start taking market share away from companies like Gillette, which P&G owns. And Unilever has been going out and sort of picking off some of these smaller companies. It's funny, you see um, the beverage companies doing it, for example. Um, You see, you know, Buy is one of these small drink groups that have popped up that um, I think Dr. Pepper Snapple bought. There's been a couple of others. And it's sort of a venture capital mentality, right? Like you go out and you kind of aggregate these smaller groups, hoping that you're going to get the one or two that actually take hold and and get real market share. And that's what Peltz wants to do. What P&G does is sort of focus on these brands that they've had for many, many years. And they're trying to change them and nuance them. One of their favorite things to point to are the little Tide um, packets. I don't know if you ever do laundry up there in New York. We do our own here in Dallas. But (laughs) (laughs) there are these little tie packets and and they've, you know, the technology for those has come a fairly long way. However, it has been, you know, decades um, and and Peltz wants more. So if if, if we give P&G a little bit of credit, I mean, it was faced a few, what, three, four years ago with another activist, Bill Ackman, who jumped in and then got out afterwards, actually not making a great deal of money, I don't think. So they've already been through through the ringer once. So you can you can sort of understand, surely, why they why the board and the executives were maybe not so keen on having yet another activist coming in. So, I mean, how does that fit into their their their, their thinking? Do you think? Um, I think it's a legitimate concern, and and you know, part of the I think part of the problem was that their other somewhat legitimate argument was like, hey, you know, we can't just let anybody on the board just because they want to be. Of course, this is Nelson Peltz. You know, he's good as a director and he has a proven track record. And I think the other issue for the company is that this vote was so close. So now they have a situation where they have, you know, very close to 50% of their shareholders who actually do want him on the board and do want his opinion. And they've spent all this money trying to fight the battle. I think there's an argument to, to say that they really need to start listening to him. All right. So, Lauren, let's talk a little bit about the campaign then, um, because, you know, in terms of the types of owners and investors that are uh, able really to swing a vote these days. It, it really kind of boils down to just a handful of, you know, really some of the big, like the Black Rocks and the State Streets, et cetera, who they're passive investors and they historically tend to vote, you know, say, however, the proxy advisor firms suggest that they vote. And it seemed to be very cut and dry. That doesn't seem to be the case anymore. These funds are starting to get more active, and they could also clearly swing votes one way or the other. I mean, where what are we seeing, you know, in terms of ownership and, and how this is playing out? Um, it's very complicated, and it's it's complicated even more when you have a very large company like P&G, which was sort of what was interesting with Peltz from the start. 
he was not able, because it's so large, to take a huge stake in the company. You know, oftentimes you'll see an activist come in, maybe they'll take you know close to 10% or something, and then they have a lot of ability to throw their weight around. In this case, he was only able to take you know 1% or a little bit more than 1% stake. So you know he didn't actually have a big vote. What he had to do was go around and try to get people on his side. Like you say, you have these massive mutual funds and they have these big stakes and 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 how they vote in these situations is becoming more of a black box. Some of these mutual fund, uh, mutual fund companies like BlackRock have both active managers and passive managers. And the active managers, like you say, are getting more active in situations, but it's really hard to know exactly how the passive funds are going to vote. Um, historically, those passive funds would vote along with management, and then that sort of started to change. And there's really no, there's it's kind of hard to determine who, as an activist, who you even really need to go to to try to get these funds to vote in your favor. You have the active managers who maybe aren't part of big funds; they were inclined to vote for Peltz. You have the retail group in Procter and Gamble, which actually the CEO David Taylor spoke about yesterday saying that he had a large amount of retail support. And there were three rooms at the investor meeting that were full and you have to assume, hey, that's probably a lot of the retail investors that live in the area. In fact, a lot of them actually got up and spoke at the meeting. And then you have all these members in the middle and you don't really know where they're gonna fall. And that's why you sort of saw this play out the way it did. Um, Anthony, you have some stats on this, like the fact that the, the Black Rocks are getting a little more active and they're starting to throw their weight behind yeah, I mean, it's, it's, issues it's that they care about. Yeah, this, this, this P&G vote was, it's, it's, it's almost going to become the, the, the classic case of what has been happening in the world of investing. Now, we've seen these passive funds have been growing and growing and growing. In fact, I've, I've been reading a, a book that's detailing that, that we're coming up to the anniversary of the 1987 crash that details the beginnings of passive investing um, by Wells Fargo advisors of all people back in the 80s. And it's grown to such a uh, such a big extent that just in the past twelve months, twelve months, they've added five hundred billion of net assets to manage on top of two hundred and fifty billion in the twelve months before that. So you know, these are becoming vast, huge funds. They now control essentially the top three: Vanguard, BlackRock, and um, State Street. State Street. Thank you. They now control often seventeen to twenty percent between them of the shares of many of the big companies. Uh, that we'd be talking about. And that, I think, Lauren, is roughly the case for P&G, right? There were 17, 18% of the, of the tally. A, they've become much bigger. Um, B, as you were saying, they, they often would simply vote with management. You know, they're, they're, as passive investors, they weren't going out picking stocks. They were investing in indices. Um, they, were, you know, they weren't really interested in, in whether P&G or GM or Honeywell was doing anything in particular. They just wanted to be part of the index. That has all changed in part because you've had you know, J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon, of all people, saying things like, you know, that too many investors like passive funds rely on proxy advisors like ISS and Glass-Lewis who will come out and say, you should vote with management or against management. And, and a lot of people will just go along with that. Well, this year, you've seen a great deal of change. Um, you've seen a State Street, in fact, was behind setting up uh, what was called the Investor Sh- Stewardship Group, which I think we talked about earlier this year which is where um, these big mutual funds and especially the passive funds are trying to prove that actually, no, we we do take note of what's happening. We are interested in what's happening around the world. And we want to make sure that, that people know that we are not just buying stocks and forgetting we want to take an active role. So why is that? Why why all of a sudden do they care? Is it that they don't want to be embarrassed or is it that they feel like they have so much money that they have to start, you know, paying I don't want to say paying attention because that's not fair. Yeah, but. I, I think they want to get more involved. I think they're also seeing things are changing somewhat on various levels. So 
on the one hand, uh, and this is one thing they've pushed this year through this this investor group, is um, that they've got, I think, is the S&P indices to say well, we'll no longer allow new companies to come into the index which have um, dual-class shares or, right. or, or give uh, certain shareholders a larger share of the vote. Um, and they're also looking at the fact you've got you know, a lot more worries about environmental so- and, and social issues, whether it's climate change, gender issues, and State Street has made a very big policy of saying we're not going to vote on boards where they're all male members. Vanguard's come up with a climate change policy. State Street's coming up with a climate change policy. You know, they need to make sure they're showing to the, their investors. Don't forget we're talking often about millennials coming into the game now who want to see that their money is being put to good use. So I think there are a variety of factors. Okay, so Lauren, let's swing this back to Nelson Peltz. For for the moment, it seems like he lost, right? He doesn't have a, a board seat. But is he going to go away? I mean, what what's his MO in, in past companies and his history, I think, suggests uh, P&G is, is not done with him yet? That's right. And, and it's funny to hear him talk about another company's ego. I mean, to, to sort of go out there and fight the way he did to get on the board of P&G um, and then you know, have the vote not go in his favor like it did yesterday. Um, it's got to be fairly bruising to his ego. It's also not the first time he's been through this. It's only the third activist proxy fight that he's taken on. And it's the second one that he's lost. He lost another one hmm. at DuPont just a couple of years ago. Um, he tried to get several members in the board there, failed to get them elected. And then lo and behold, he stuck around. A couple months later, the CEO stepped down the company announced a deal with Dow and he sort of behind the scenes with several other activists that later came in, got to the company to you know close the deal, rearrange a, a breakup that they had planned on doing. So people sort of said, oh, oh, he lost that. He lost that fight too. No, actually he kind of didn't. You know, he, he lost the battle, but won the war. And I don't really see him going anywhere, anywhere with P&G. In fact, it could actually be a bit messier given the fact that he's he's not actually sitting on the board. And, and that the vote was so close because that must be making PNG quite nervous. Well, uh, casters came out with a statement last night reiterating their support for Pelt. So clearly, you know, big groups of shareholders are still on his side. And I, I think that the, when, it, when we finally get the results, looking at how what what percentage each director has got will be quite interesting as well. Because normally, if say several directors who've been reaffirmed are only getting 50, 60, 70 percent of the vote, then usually that sends a signal to um, the board and to management that things need to change. And often that happens, like Lauren was saying, has happened at DuPont. And it would be incredible if we see some of that at, at, um, at P&G and we see Peltz's uh, board seat um, uh, push getting very close and nothing being done at all, even if Peltz does, doesn't get on the board. Um, okay, so also Dan Loeb earlier this week lost one of his bids that he was going uh, for Honeywell. It wasn't quite anywhere near as acrimonious. In fact, it, it was described as kind of a friendly suggestions, if, if that could be the case for an activist. Um, and then Honeywell comes out and says, listen, we're going to spin off two of these units that um, just doesn't have as much value to the company. So instead of spinning off the aerospace, which is a huge piece of the company, um, they decided to spin off uh, these lesser divisions. Anthony, what, you know, 
maybe walk us through that and why that's not such a bad thing. Yeah, exactly. So actually, it's, it's funny in this case, Dan, Dan Loeb is claiming not so much victory, but saying I'm, we're glad to see what they're doing. And that fits in with the way he's, he's gone about um, getting into this company. And to an extent how I, th- I think um, Peltz was trying to get into PNG initially, which is to be, the idea is that you, you try not to antagonize management unless they get no response whatsoever. And in this instance, you know, we have a change of CEO. So David Cote had been running Honeywell for years. Darius Adamczyk was promoted uh, and took over in, I think, April this year and had already in March given a speech uh, to analysts and investors saying, this is roughly what we're looking at. We're going to look at the portfolio of businesses. Nothing's off the table. And in April, Loeb comes out and says, we like what Dar- where Darius Adamczyk's going. Uh, we'd love to see what he's going to do. Basically, what we think should happen is that the aerospace business, um, it, it's not growing quickly enough. In fact, it was very little growth in the last three years of the top line. Um, and it's becoming a drag. And you know, look, you can you know, pick your, your company. We think this could add 20% of value to the overall holdings for the investors. classic sum of the parts. Classic sum of the parts. And, you know, the shares went up about ten percent over the over the next uh, few months, ten twelve percent, and they went up a little bit more on the on the news uh, this week that Honeywell's spinning out. In fact, not the aerospace unit, which is about uh, thirteen billion of revenue in total, at forty billion or so a year. It's spinning out two smaller businesses, home products and um, a car engines business, basically that's bizarrely within aerospace because there's no else for it to belong. And these combined are seven and a half billion of revenue. And what Adamczyk's saying is, look. Neither of these really fit into the company. Um, they're lower revenue and lower margins. And we think we, if by just getting rid of those, we can get our b- margins up. We don't have to worry about spinning off a really big business that will probably hurt uh, our bottom line too quickly and take a lot of time. This is a far simpler thing to do. So um, given the fact that uh, Pelton and Loeb seem for the moment to have lost their campaigns, do you think that this is sort of a new dawn for activism and that we're going to see um, more of them struggle to kind of get what they want to get done? Well, I mean, if I jump in here, I think you know, in, in some respects, you know, it's not easy going after big companies. I mean, Lauren made the, the point very well. And this is a what $230 billion company, and he took a, a $3.5 billion stake, and it's one of the biggest ever, if not the biggest ever taken, and it represented a small part of the company. So it's very hard as you go after these bigger companies, if they're not willing to take part in what you're doing, to necessarily get them to do what you want to do. But you've got a lot of activists out of there who are putting a lot of money to work. I think so far this year, According to Lazard figures, $45 billion worth of capital has been, been deployed in activist campaigns, and that's more than was put out in, uh, in the entirety of last year. So activists clearly feel uh, they have a lot to do. There's more going on in Europe as well compared to the past. So you know, they're, they're looking elsewhere for, for targets. So from Loeb's perspective, it's not a bad outcome. And as Lauren was saying, if uh, PNG ends up doing what DuPont did, then he's going to win anyway. Right. Well, and it also sounds like they have new constituents, which are BlackRock, State Street and Vanguard. Well, I was going to say, too, it seems like a sort of healthy evolution, sort of the free markets and activism where um, it's becoming a more mature business. And you're starting to see people understand what they do and the separation between various activists and their you know personalities and um and so it probably is not going to be the last time you see them, quote unquote, losing. OK, well, we'll leave it at that. Thank you, Lauren, for your time. And thank you, Anthony, as always. All right, thank you. That's our show for this week. We'd like to thank our guests, Lauren Silva Laughlin, and hats off to our producers, Ross Shoulder, Ryan Warner, and Freddie Joyner. And our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at BreakingViews.com and subscribe to the Views Room on iTunes. Don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.